Hello, Girlboss. COO and Editor-in-Chief of Girlboss, Neha Gandhi here, filling in for Sofia Amoruso. We have a great guest for you today. She's the Editor-in-Chief of Allure Magazine, Michelle Lee. Before we get to our chat, I want to remind you that if you want to join us in building the future of Girlboss, you can check out the Girlboss community. Get early access now at community.girlboss.com. Also, remember, if you like what you hear on today's show, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe, and tell a friend. We'll get to my chat with Michelle Lee in just a moment, but first, Sophia is going to tell you about Stitch Fix. If you don't know, and you should by now, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. So if you want to learn more, go to stitchfix.com slash girlboss. All you have to do is tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. You try them on, pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free, and there's no subscription required. You can sign up to receive scheduled shipments or get your fix whenever you want. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, which is applied toward anything you keep from your shipment. I love Stitch Fix. We have a steady stream of Stitch Fix boxes coming in and out of the girl boss offices. I got this incredible sweater because it's so rainy here in Los Angeles and I can't stop wearing it. I'm excited for my next box and I know our team here is as well. So get started now at stitchfix.com slash girlboss and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash girlboss to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash girlboss. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Michelle Lee is an editor, influencer, thought leader, and sought-after public speaker. Michelle started her career in magazines, working in publications such as Parenting, Glamour, Paper, and more. She's part of the launch teams for Us Weekly and the Daily Front Row, as well as Cosmo Girl, which won Adweek's launch of the year. She has held senior staff positions at Mademoiselle and is a former editor-in-chief of In Touch Weekly and InTouchWeekly.com. Other career highlights include her roles at Magnified Media as CCO, Hollywood.com as SVP of content, and as the CMO and Editor-in-Chief of Nylon, where she was in charge of editorial content as well as the ideation and execution of native advertising. These days, she holds the title of Editor-in-Chief of Allure. Since assuming the role in 2015, she has been committed to championing diversity and expanding the definition of beauty. I remember early on meeting with our the big ad sales team and talking to them about what I wanted to do. And I hadn't even thought about this until someone had asked it to me. And I remember blurting out, 
when they said, what are your goals? What do you think you could do with Allure? I was like, I think we can change the world. And it sounds so blustery now because you're like, really? Okay, beauty media, like you're going to change the world. But I actually think some of the things that we did have moved the needle. I think that we can actually, through beauty standards, help change the world. She was named Adweek's 2017 Editor of the Year, while Allure won Adweek's Magazine of the Year. Her work at Allure also earned her a place on the Glossy 50 Modern Media List in 2017. Today, she's here to share her tips for how to break into the magazine business, the best ways to empower your employees, and the role beauty should play in the modern woman's life. Now, let's get to it. Here's my chat with Michelle Lee. I want to start from the beginning. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for being with us today. Hi. Thanks for having me. I... I'm so excited to have you. You're one of the editors I have admired for a really long time. And as someone who works in this field, it's always fun to talk to someone who does amazing work in the same space. But let's start at the beginning. Let's start before you were a very fancy editor-in-chief. And I want to hear about your first job. Where was it? Oh, God. Well, when I was 13 or 14, I think my first job was really babysitting. Um, But really, my first job was I worked part-time when I was 16. So I grew up mostly in Connecticut. And then my dad got a new job in Florida when I was 16. So we moved down to South Florida. And I went to high school, but then I also had a part-time job at Macy's. So um, I very specifically had a job at Macy's in the jeans department. And there were these high tables where I had to fold the jeans. And I also had to help all the consumer, all the customers kind of get to the fitting room and all that. So today, I'm really good at folding jeans. Um, then when I was in college, I got a part-time job at a B. Dalton bookstore. So I was a bookseller. And I feel like I still, I don't know, I think back about those days and I think that I learned so much just about humility, but also customer service. Um, thinking about the holidays coming up, I remember around the holidays when I worked at B. Dalton, there was a time where they made this some stupid rule about the booksellers had to gift wrap. So any customer who wanted their books gift wrapped, um, we had to basically, you know, we'll ring them up, but then also turn around and gift wrap. And I'm the worst gift wrapper on the planet. So I feel like that season, everyone got like really janky gift wrapping. <laughs> That's amazing. That sounds like my dream job, actually. If I could leave my job and just wrap gifts all day, I would do it. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm horrible at it. But I feel like I learned so much um, just about dealing with money at that point, too, because I would sometimes work the morning shift, but then sometimes work the evening shift. If I worked at night, I had to balance the the um, register. So I remember just having to like learn a lot about money and taking care of people. And I also, I mean, not to detour too much, but it was the first job where I learned about sexual harassment too. So I, um, in the back of our store, there was a software department and they were sort of attached, but not really. So we shared the back room. And I was thinking about this recently where... There was a manager within the software department who sometimes I was in the back room by myself and like I was sitting there and he would late at night kind of come behind me and do the whole like massaging my shoulders Uh. thing. And I was like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. And I never said anything at that point until one day he late at night, it was just the two of us back there. I was sitting down and he kind of like sneak attacked me and he kissed me on the cheek and said, good night, honey, and then walked out the door. And I remember feeling like, oh, God, I feel so uncomfortable about this. And I mentioned to my manager the next day. And I was so happy with myself because I feel like um, there was this sort of like tug of, you know, I feel uncomfortable, but I'm sure he was joking about it. It was sort of harmless. But I think in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, I'm, I'm really proud of myself. Gosh, how old were you at the time? 16? I think I was. Let's see. So I was in college at that point. I must have been 18. Got it. 
That's, I mean, yeah, at that age, you're so vulnerable. It's hard to steal yourself and say something. Yeah. Was there a consequence or? There wasn't a consequence. Um, there was a consequence in that my manager talked to his manager and then he did actually apologize to me. So it definitely made things uncomfortable though. And it's like, you know, again, and just like in light of everything, it was such a small example of things. But I think that it, I could just see how, you know, even today there are people who are uncomfortable to say something because they're like, oh, I don't want to make it awkward or whatever. But it's like, Today, I'm like, I always say to young women, it's like, if you feel uncomfortable about something, say something. Yeah. So after that job. Yeah. You have a great story about sort of missing your college graduation (laughs) (laughs) because you were already working. Yes. So I, like I said, so I moved to Florida when I was 16 and I stayed down there for college. So I went to the University of South Florida and my first two years, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was definitely not one of those kids who grew up thinking like, I want to be a journalist. Um, So around my sophomore year, I needed to choose a major. So I chose journalism. Partly because I think that I loved writing, but I also I loved the building, the MassCom building. So I was like, I'd really love to spend time there. Um, but the more that I look back on my life, it made sense for me that I, I felt like a writer. I felt like a journalist. At the same time, though, I think I was bored. I was a very bored college kid. So I, around my sophomore year, junior year, was like, oh, God, I just wish that I was done with college already. Like, I wanted to move to New York and start working. So my junior year of college, I got not a part-time job. I got a full-time job. Um, So I started taking some internships, and I got a full-time job as a staff writer at a weekly newspaper um, called The Weekly Planet, and I worked full-time. So I made all of my classes at night, and I think about that now, and and for some reason, it didn't seem that odd to me. But when I look back on it now, I'm like, you know what? It kind of was a little badass. Um, So I was very busy, of course, but it's like when you're young, I feel like you just have so much energy, so I wasn't even tired. Um, So by the time I was ready to graduate... I was so ready to move, and so I met my um, my now husband down there also. So he grew up up north as well, and we just knew we were ready for our life together. So I had gotten an internship at Glamour um, through the American Society of Magazine Editors, and before I even graduated, I was like, we're moving. Like My internship was starting in May, and I think graduation must have been in June or July, and so I was on a plane already to New York City. I did technically graduate, like I have a diploma and everything, but I didn't need the whole fanfare of walking and and doing the whole ceremony. You were already on to the next step. I was. Would you recommend working full-time to someone who came to you and was like, should I manage a full course load of work? Um, You know what? I think about this a lot now just because, so I'm a mom and I have two kids. And my oldest is 13, and my dad likes to remind me, you know, Ethan's going to be in college soon. And I'm like, it's not that soon. But um, the cost of college these days is so high that a lot of people have asked me, like, if I could go back in time, do I think I still would get a college degree? I still think that there's something about college that helps in terms of maturity. Um, When it comes to the actual education of what I do, though, I learned so much being on the job. And I think you would probably agree also, like, as a journalist and as a writer, when you're just writing full time, you're learning way more than you possibly could in a classroom setting. And in fact, when I moved up to New York and I was working at Glamour, I feel like I learned so much just about um, how to operate in an office, too, um, to the point of where I had only been there for about like three or four months. And I remember writing letters to my old professors being like, you need to teach your students this, 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 the stuff that the textbooks are teaching about how to pitch editors um, when you want to be a freelance writer is totally wrong. It's not the way it works in the real world. So I feel like it was, um, 
I felt this responsibility in a way to tell everyone in the old classroom setting, like, this is not the way that it's done. I know we have tons of ambitious, creative girl bosses out there. So I asked Michelle to share her advice for how to build a career in the magazine industry. There are so many different ways. And I think first and foremost, it's write a ton. Because if you're someone who's never had any work published before, it's going to be really hard to have an editor somewhere say, great, I'm going to give you a shot. It happens, but I think it's very rare. Um, Some young people have asked me also, is it helpful if I start my own blog? It can be helpful, but I also think that that can serve a disservice too. Because if the blog is bad, if you leave it up, let's say, and it's five years old or seven years old or whatever, and it's not truly reflective of how you write now, the first thing I do when I look at new writers or someone who I'm going to hire, you Google, right? Everybody Googles. So I will go several pages deep. I'm not just looking at that first page of results. I'm looking pretty far down and I'm looking at people's social media. So I think um, it's kind of getting all of those things in order. Make sure your social media is in order. Make sure if you had a blog at any point, it's still in tip-top shape or get rid of it. Um, But then also I always say that editors ultimately are kind of name droppers. Um, We're name droppers when it comes to people, but we're also name droppers when it comes to brands. So for example, if there's a young writer who I know who's written for GQ, they've written for Vogue, they wrote for Harper's Bazaar, they wrote for Refinery, instantly when I see that on their resume or if I see that listed in their, their clips, it's a signal to me that someone else has given them sign off already. So that's sort of the first thing. Then I, of course, will dig into their work. It's a little bit hard sometimes, though, because you don't know how much something has been edited. So then typically I would give somebody an edit test just to see, like, you know, uh, do I actually like their writing? Do I like their voice? But I think my advice really is just to write a ton and to make those personal relationships. Again, as I was saying with, like, the Internet, I think it's so much easier because of social media. Don't be a pest about it. But I do definitely get people who comment on my Instagram or who will DM me. And to start those personal relationships sort of young. And again, not to do it in like an annoying way where it's too much. But I think that it's a way that you can get people to notice you. Yeah. So you read all of your or some of your deep DMs? I do. I do. And I try to answer all of them. I feel like more often than not now, I'm doing like I'll send back a little heart just because I don't have time to really send back. Um, But I have a whole method of where... If something requires a bit more time, um, I'll leave it in there for a little bit. I I definitely try and respond to everything, though. Wow, good for you. Uh, That's how you build a relationship, right? (laughs) You said a thing about in that first job or wherever you're starting, like you need to be writing. You need to be building a portfolio. I'm thinking about my own first job in magazines. I was an assistant. I didn't write anything for the first where did Probably you work? Where were you an assistant? Harper's Bazaar. Okay. And so I got to, you know, after six months, I got to start sitting on features meetings. I got to pitch. But I, you know, if I wrote, it was really only massaging someone else's work. And I love that experience. I learned so much there. But I wonder if I would actually recommend a job like that to someone today because there are so many jobs where you walk in at the age of 22, 21, whatever, and you start writing multiple stories a day. Yeah. Well, it's a bit of my experience also. So when I was at Glamour as an intern, I was lucky because as part of this um, ASME internship, as it was called, I got to spend two weeks in every department. So at the time that I moved to New York, 
I had in my mind that I wanted to be a fashion editor. I don't even know why because I don't think I knew what it meant. I was just like on a plane from Florida. I'm like, I'm going to go up to New York to the big city and be a fashion editor. And then luckily, my first two weeks that I had at Glamour, I spent in the fashion closet. And then after those two weeks, I was like, I don't want to be a fashion editor. (laughs) And of course, as a fashion intern, you're not at all doing anything near what an actual fashion editor does. But I think it just opened my eyes into what what are all these roles even, right? And so when I was at Glamour, I got to do a bit of everything. But my first full-time job, I actually, um, in between that, I interviewed to be an assistant at Vogue. And I was gutted because I didn't get it. So my first actual job was as an editorial assistant at Parenting. And polar opposites, right? It's like working at Vogue versus working at Parenting. And I thought, well, God, like Parenting, I know nothing about. I didn't have kids. I didn't know anything about what it meant to be a parent. Um, I didn't know anything about children's health, all the things that I was dealing with. But it turned out actually to be a great job because I was assisting five editors and it was very editorial. So I was doing a ton of writing. I eventually started editing the entire children's health department. Um, But also, and this is my advice for a lot of young people too, if you maybe are in a role where you're not getting to do a lot of um, the sort of like good meaty stuff, is freelance. So a lot of times um, we might have in our contracts that you're not allowed to freelance write for anything competitive. So if you worked at Bazaar, maybe you couldn't write for Elle, for Glamour, for Vogue, blah, blah, blah. To be able to ask your boss, in my spare time, like, I'll totally do this at night, on the weekends, could I write for Men's Health? Could I write for GQ? Could I write for some of these other things? So I, on top of having this assistant job, have this very, very successful freelance career as well because my bosses were really cool about it. So I was writing for Men's Health. I was writing for a lot of men's things that were not competitive with anything that we were doing. So by the time I was ready to move on from being an assistant, I already had this full library of clips where I wasn't just writing small stories, I was writing full features for some of these other magazines. We'll get back to my conversation with Michelle soon. First, Sophia is gonna tell you a little bit about Prudential. Taking a quick podcast break to share a message from our partners at Prudential. When was the last time you thought about retirement? If you've been procrastinating in that department, don't fret because it's never too late to start planning for your future. In fact, more than half of Americans don't know where they stand when it comes to meeting their financial goals. Take control of your future by setting aside a little quality time with your wallet to figure out what you can do to start saving today. If you're looking for pointers, head to prudential.com slash state of us to find helpful tips to get you on your way. Hey everyone, today I'm jumping on the phone with one of our Uber pitch winners. We'll hear from our third place winner, Jamila Achampong, who founded Commune. Please welcome her to the show. Jamila, tell us about your business. What is the one minute pitch for Commune? So Commune is a luxury marketplace for skin tone fashion. Um, We design all of our products in 10 skin tone hues in order to provide all women with a true nude option. Uh, It's wild, but not surprising how few products come in only Caucasian colors. So I think like across the board in every category, it's a huge opportunity. And I'm so glad that you're doing this. And I know so many women are going to benefit from what you're doing. So I'm so curious, you know, how did you come to the idea for Commune? And what impact has this problem had on you, on you, on you personally? What has the experience been like? And how did you decide to, to solve the problem? So I came up with the idea for the brand um, early 2016. 
I was on Instagram one night and I think I saw a picture of Kim Kardashian in just a full nude uh, outfit. And I just read the song in love and thinking like, I want to recreate this outfit, but for me, but what I quickly realized was that if I did it the way she had and searched for nude products, it would just be like tan on my skin. So I set out to find like products that would actually like match like my brown skin tone. And there's literally nothing. And I even had to search like, brown shoes or like brown nude or nude for black women. And there's still, you know, there weren't options. And I think for a lot of brands, brown is seasonal and you won't always be able to find like a style that you like that's, you know, potentially in your price point. So, you know, there were other brands doing similar stuff for like lingerie and lip glosses and lipsticks and that kind of stuff, but I couldn't find any shoes. So I decided to run with the idea for shoes And I think, you know, growing up with, like, Band-Aids, for example, you notice that they blend in with, like, your Caucasian friend's skin, but it just looks, it's like an eyesore on your own skin. And then, like, I knew what nude was, and I just knew that it was beige. And I think we've all kind of learned to accept that because there hasn't been other options. Um, But I'm pretty stubborn, so I was like, I'm going to change this. Literally a color called nude. Like there's a color called yeah. nude that was based around Caucasian skin. Like it's an actual color yeah. of lipstick. It's the color um, that you buy like a, a, you know, top. It's like ivory yep. eggshell nude. The world hasn't been built inclusively in, in terms of, you know, the I mean, just in general, but the products we consume especially. And you've said that the fashion and beauty industries have operated on an exclusive model rather than an inclusive model. So just tell me, like, what do you mean by that? It's just, like, ridiculous because I, like, I'm neither what they would call quote-unquote plus size, but, like, I'm not model size. But there's so many times, like, I'll go into a store and things just don't fit. And, you know, you just have to leave and deal with the fact that, like, okay, I'm not going to be able to wear this style or this cut, or this outfit this season, or practically ever. So I've always kind of had a problem with the fact that we're all kind of forced to just accept what we're, we're given, you know, at face value, and that's what the industry just profits off of. Okay, we're going to offer this style of clothing and these, these sizes, neither it fits you or it doesn't, and, like, we don't care. So I've always had, like, a very diverse group of friends. We're all shades, we're all sizes, all backgrounds, and it's just so important to me to kind of continue that rhetoric in all aspects of my life. So when I came up with the brand, I was like, it's important for me to create something that's inclusive. So like all women feel like they have an option with our brand. And then, you know, personally, like it'd be so great to just have all my girlfriends and all of our skin tones be able to wear my brand. Like that's something that I'm very proud of. And do you carry Caucasian colored shoes? Like is that, I'm sure there's plenty out there, but do you serve that market as well? Yeah, um, I think it was important to create something for me, but also create an option for everyone because even the new shoes on the market, like they're one staple color. They don't always necessarily blend into even Caucasian skin. So my lightest Mm -hmm. shade would, you know, fit someone that has albinism or is extremely pale. Um, And then there's like four other shades that come up from that before you go into like the darker shades. But yeah, just like inclusion is the name of the game for me. So I just wanted to create something for everyone. And even some of my Caucasian customers have been really impressed with how it actually blends in. Like it doesn't just look like a tan shoe. Yeah. 
And so a lot of people see problems in the world and they just kind of shrug it off and say, well, I guess I'll Google brown shoes and won't find yeah. anything and that's that. But you decided to solve that problem. Why do you, like, why did you decide to do that? And I guess what about you is different that makes you stand up and say, I'm going to change this? I think I've always been different, so to speak. Um, I like to think I've always been more of a leader than a follower. Either it's been like, my loudness or, you know, just like excelling in sports or academics. But I've always also loved just entrepreneurship and startups. And I've known that I wanted to have my own business and brand. I've just never quite known what it would be. So when I came up with the idea, like I do love fashion, but I know like I'm not the next, you know, great designer. Um, so I knew that, you know, with Commune having this kind of mission behind it and still being able to fulfill I love for passion. It was like the perfect thing to run with. And like I said earlier, if I can fulfill my passion for diversity and, you know, my belief that it just makes us all stronger to be surrounded by people who are different from us and learn from them, then, you know, I'm living a life that's fulfilling for me. So, you know, commune fulfills both of those needs in my life. So I just knew I had to run with it. And your shoes are your shoes are gorgeous, and they're handmade in yeah. Italy. So why have you chosen luxury over fast fashion? Uh, so I just remember hearing this news story when I was living in London about this big brand out there that's just known for like fast fashion, you know, trendy items. But there's this huge story that ran about how one of their employees overseas like sewed the word help into one of their socks and then another employee like handwrote a note that was like please help me and a customer bought them and found it and I just remember being so mortified and then of all of the stories as well overseas about factories collapsing and everything I just knew that I couldn't be part of that problem and yes we're not vegan it is you know genuine leather but you know fast fashion and the amount of waste and consumption I just couldn't subscribe to that and second fold I also just feel like Women of color don't usually get luxury items marketed to them and more specifically designed with them in mind. And, you know, like we have the purchase power. We do want these products. You know, we do take pride in the way we look and just having like a good quality item. So I just really wanted to be one of the first brands that really recognizes that and offers that to, you know, all consumers. So what is your plan? What is your plan? What are you going to do with the money? What's next? Uh get some help. Um, I am over the solar founder thing. It is very taxing. Um, and yeah, it's just really time to grow the team. And then also just, you know, market marketing and PR costs, maybe looking at bringing on either somebody in-house or hiring an outside team. And then, you know, inventory and stock, maybe getting an office, joining a co-working space because, I've just been working at home and out of coffee shops um, and just less stress. Like this has been so amazing for me because I feel like I'm actually like getting back to my old self and not having to worry about like money and paying for inventory and that kind of thing. So I'm really, really excited mm -hmm. to grow the brand. Well, congratulations again. It's so Thank nice you. to connect with you. I'm glad we had a chance because we, didn't really have a chance at the rally. And um, thank you for sharing all of this with us. And where can we find and follow Commune? So it's all of our social is at Commune, K-A-H-M-U-N-E, and also www.commune.com. 
Thank you so much, Jamila. And you can continue to follow her journey along with the other winners at Girl Ball. Now back to the show. So I want to move a little bit further forward. You had that job at Glamour. You were promoted or you moved on to then parents, parenting. Um, what happened next? Because you made a little bit of a shift into – I did. So if you look at my resume around those – I, I want to say maybe the first six or seven years, I was such a job hopper because someone very early on had said to me that in the media world, especially at that time, in order to move up, you have to move out. So I took that way too much to heart, I think, and to to a fault. Um, so every single year, basically, I had a different job and to the point of where I had one job only for six months because um, so I had this job at this little magazine called Fit Magazine that I don't even think exists anymore. I stayed there for about six months and then had gotten a job at um, Cosmo Girl when Cosmo Girl was just launching. And it was a big step up for me where it was a lot more responsibility, bigger title, bigger salary. And I felt like, well, it's not going to hurt me looking like I've been somewhere for six months. Eventually, though, once I started uh, jumping so much, headhunters and HR people were definitely like, this girl is not going to stay here for much longer. And I think as a boss now, I definitely look at people who, if they look like they've jumped around a lot, it's a red flag. Because you don't want to spend time training someone for such a long time thinking, well, after a year, they're going to jump ship. Um, so yeah, so after parenting, I worked a bunch of different places, always freelancing throughout that whole time. Like I said, I was at Cosmo Girl during the launch. I think I was in the higher, what was I? I think I was higher number three at Cosmo Girl. And if you've ever, I mean, you work at a startup now. So it's like when you work on a startup, it's the hardest thing that you could possibly do. It's long hours. It's a lot of thankless work, I think. But it's also one of the most gratifying things because you're taking a brand that does not even exist and you're helping to make it into something as opposed to coming to work at a brand like a glamour or something which is decades old and it's amazing but the actual impact that you can make on that brand is so much less so something got into me i think about loving the startup feeling um it's like a wartime situation i guess where it's like you you love it and you hate it um so i was at Cos uh, cosmo girl i went to mademoiselle as a senior editor which i i know it was such an amazing time and the bulk of the beginning of my career was really spent in women's publishing. So um, very, very print-focused, though. So I left Mademoiselle and, you know, long story short, because it's sort of like, again, I have a, a very complicated resume. I came back to Glamour at some point, and I thought, this is exactly where I want to be. Like, this was the brand that I loved forever. It was sort of my end goal at that point. I never had aspirations of being anything higher than a senior editor. Like, I thought, this is just it for me. I loved who I was working with. I was working on some cover stories and doing features. And I thought, that's it. Like, I was 25, I think. 25, I'm like, I'm just going to stay here forever. Until I got a call from a headhunter saying, um, we're launching this new um, celebrity magazine called In Touch. So in between this also, sorry, I skipped a spot too. I was on the launch of Us Weekly. So kind of had taken this detour into celebrity for a bit and then came back around to women's publishing. And then... I don't know, at Glamour, I was like, I just want to stay here. So I actually had said no to the headhunter on the phone. And she was like, well, you know, they're really looking um, hard at you. And, you know, if you could just meet with the editor-in-chief, just have lunch, sit down with him, no harm, no foul if you say no. 
So I was like, all right, you know, what's the harm of meeting somebody? I feel like it's always worthwhile to take meetings and, and make contacts. So we had lunch, and I remember he brought a couple, like, early issues in the magazine, and he was like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And he was showing me certain stories, and I remember, like, just being bluntly honest with him about things, of being like, well, this doesn't make any sense to me because blah, blah, blah. And I think because I didn't want the job at all, I felt like I could just be super honest. He was like, I just said something like that to my staff the other day. So, you know, I I could tell that the meeting was going really well. They put on the hard press on me. I said no when they made me an offer. And then they made me another offer. And they kind of kept upping um, the offer to the point where I honestly couldn't say no. And the big thing for me was really about um, management experience. So it, of course, it was amazing money. I think they even doubled my salary. I was going from a senior editor to an executive editor somewhere. And as a young person, that's really appealing. Um, But the big thing for me was management experience because at the time at Glamour, I think it was maybe overseeing like one or two assistants. At this new place, I would be overseeing a staff of 25 at the time, and it would eventually grow to me overseeing a staff of 100. So I went over there and I thought for sure, like, I'm going to stay there for a year, maybe two years. And I ended up staying for seven. And I remember every year talking to different HR people who I knew at like big uh, publishing companies and saying, do you think I'm in danger of becoming a quote unquote celebrity person at some point? And in the beginning, maybe three years, I think they all said, no, 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 you're fine. Like if you jump now, you still have enough women's publishing experience that you'll be okay. Um, After year four, though, people did start to express a bit of worry. And I think like if you remember back then, like you know, in the start of Us Weekly days, let's say, everything was all fun. And it was like, stars are just like us and fashion police. And everything was done in the spirit of of fun. And then eventually, the celebrity world turned really dark. And I think everything became very tabloid and gross. And around this time, also, like I was entering my 30s. And I was a young mom. And I remember having my son and being like, coming home and feeling just weird about it, that I would have to come home, teach him right from wrong, but then go to work and feel like the things that we were doing just felt icky and not right. So also around that time, um, my company was not invested or even interested in digital, but I started looking ahead and I saw that it was the future. So I ended up taking a pay cut in half and I just walked away. So I talked to my husband before doing it and he was super supportive. He was just like, you know, do what you have to do. I, at that point, was making a really, really good living. I had sort of this cushy deal where I had Tuesdays where I could work from home. Like, again, as a a new mom, like, those are all things that are really difficult to walk away from. But I asked myself, 10 years from now, is this where I see myself? And I unequivocally said no. So I just knew, like, why wait? Like, why, why am I prolonging anything? You just have to leave now. So I got a new job um, at a digital-only company, and I was terrified. It's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you took the pay cut, you took the leap, and you left something, I mean, Tuesdays at home with your kid. Like, it sounds amazing. But you took the new job, and you learned a lot. I did. I did. I took the new job, and I did a little bit of a fake it till you make it. Um, I feel like the question that I get a lot at panels and stuff is about, um, imposter syndrome, which we all feel. And I still feel to this day. Um, I think that no matter how successful you get, I actually think sometimes that imposter syndrome can fuel you. Um, I think that there is something about feeling like an underdog and feeling like you constantly have to improve yourself that keeps me kind of hungry with things. Um, so when I was at this, the digital only company, um, I actually was starting something new within this company, and I was able to hire about, I think at first we hired about 12 people, 
And it was an amazing staff. We all got along super well. We were doing great for the company. And then about a year in, our company lost funding. So the owners of it decided, you know what, we don't want to actually pay for this anymore. So everything fell apart. And then suddenly, a year after leaving this high-paying job, I found myself without a job and feeling like I have made the biggest mistake ever. So I was very proud of myself, though, because I didn't wallow at all. Um, I Even later that day, I think I maybe let myself be upset for about an hour. And then an hour later, I made a phone call to three of my former coworkers, and I said, let's start something. And I just had this fire under me because, one, I knew that I needed to help provide for my family. But two, there was something about that quote-unquote failure and that trauma of it that lit this new fire under me that I just knew whatever I do next, I want it to be awesome. So I look back on that time now, and even though it was so traumatic in the moment, it turned out to be one of the most formative, amazing experiences of my life because I not only learned a lot on the job in that year about digital – But it also just kind of reignited this fire in me to keep learning and to build something myself. Um, I think after working for such a long time doing the same thing, I got really complacent and just not bored, but it's like you start to learn how to do the same routine over and over again. So I taught myself so much in that year um, after the, the project fell apart where I taught myself how to code. I taught myself CSS. I taught myself how to do photography and Photoshop. I can do a really awesome PowerPoint I taught myself video editing, so many different things of where I then suddenly realized that the things that made me feel proud and successful were actually all within my grasp already. Um, And that feeling like I could learn something that I thought I could never do gave me this new sense of feeling successful. Yeah. And so from there, you took all those amazing new skills, some of them new, some of them maybe were already in you. And you, I know that you went to work on branded content for a while as your own agency, and then you went to Nylon, where you were the editor-in-chief and CMO. Yes, which is a very odd role. <laughs> <laughs> Do you recommend the dual role? I'm in a dual role right now. And Are it's, you? Oh. it's a balance. I'm the CEO and editor-in-chief. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so after I, um, uh, when I started something myself, we, we launched our own branded content agency. And that was fun because I've never started some, I'd freelanced before, but I've never started a company before to even just do like to form a corporation, an LLC, and like do that whole thing. But when you're your own boss, you suddenly wear 20 different hats because you're the salesperson, you are the marketing person, you're doing social media, you're literally doing everything. At the same time, There's a part of me that loves that life, but I also wanted some more stability. So I got an email. I think it was like a LinkedIn message from the new publisher of Nylon. And I had written for Nylon way, way, way back in the day. So I've always loved it as a brand. And she emailed me saying, we're looking for a new editor-in-chief. Do you want to come have breakfast? So I had breakfast with her, and it lasted like two hours. And as I started talking about everything that we could do, I was so excited. And I knew instantly it was something that I wanted to do. So it was a pretty easy yes for me. And then over time, like my role there was to reinvent the brand. Um, At the time, I think it was a 16-year-old brand that was really rooted in print. So they wanted to make sure that it was brought into the modern world with digital and social video, everything, but also to have a big events business to look into e-commerce and other things. So I found that really exciting. You'll hear more from Michelle in just a second. But first, Sophia is going to chat with you all about Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. You can take classes in pretty much everything you can think of, social media marketing, data science, web development, 
watercoloring, you name it, they've got it. So whether you're trying to deepen your professional skill set, start a side hustle, or just explore a new hobby, Skillshare is there to keep you learning and thriving. What I love about Skillshare is that I can dip in and out of different courses. I can learn a little bit about engineering and product development. We just hired a VP of product here at Girlboss and he reports to me and I want to know more about the process and running sprints and agile methodology and all of these things that till now have felt pretty foreign to me. Skillshare has been such a huge help. Um, also, they have a course on creative leadership, so they have something called Creative Leadership Toolkit, Curiosity, History, and Discovery. And I'm a creative leader, understanding how to institutionalize my creativity. To pass it down to the team is a job in and of itself. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. You'll hear more of my interview with Michelle in a few. But first, Sophia is going to tell you about ShipStation. Oh, ShipStation, how much I love you. We're in the midst of holiday season, and if you have an e-commerce business, which so many of Girlboss Radio listeners do, it's crunch time. You're emailing your customers as often as you can. You're banging on their doors on Instagram. Hopefully, you're marketing the crap out of your business because right now you have permission to send as many emails as you want. And if you want the cheapest rates possible, ShipStation will help you choose the right carrier to get the lowest rate for every package. ShipStation is a fast and easy way to manage and ship your orders all from one place. So whether you're using your own website, Shopify, Squarespace, Etsy, or over 75 other popular selling channels, you can use ShipStation to bring all of your orders into one simple interface. You can manage it from any device, and ShipStation can create shipping labels for all the top carriers, including UPS, FedEx, and USPS. We have some merch here at Girlboss. We've tested it out, and we actually have a lot of incredible stuff that we sold at the Girlboss Rally in New York a few weeks ago. I can't believe that was just a few weeks ago. Wow. And we use ShipStation, and with it, we ship more in less time with the best rates available. So right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use our promo code GIRLBOSS. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's ShipStation.com. Enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Now, let's get back to my chat with Michelle. So I want to jump ahead to your time now as the editor-in-chief of Allure, where you have done some amazing things. And I want to discuss all of those things, but I actually want to start with sort of what it felt like to walk into that job. Because we, you know, I think Linda Wells has spoken fairly publicly about like her experience of being asked to leave a title that she had, you know, dreamed up and created. And I think walking into someone's shoes like that, how do you prepare yourself for that? Oh, it is terrifying. It's terrifying. And I have to say, like, Linda is an idol of mine. You know, I think for a lot of us who've come up in publishing, like looking at her career and what she's done for beauty, but also just like women's journalism. I mean, she is an absolute legend. So I think that for me, it was really hard because I think that a lot of people within the industry, but also outside, looked at me as this new person who was kind of pushing her out. 
And that part of things really killed me because, again, here's someone who I ultimately like super, super admire. So that was a really hard thing. But also to know that here I have to come in to the staff who has worked with her for such a long time. Everyone respects her so much. And to build that respect because you don't expect to just walk in somewhere and feel like, okay, everyone, I'm here. Come respect me. So I have to say like the first year was really, really tough because it was getting um, the staff on board to new vision. But it was also making sure that we shift the audience, too. So a lot of it was, um, you know, when I came on at Allure, I've been there for about three years now. It was taking something that was a magazine, known as a magazine, and we still obviously care a lot about the magazine, but opening it up to be more digital, social, video, but also other things now. We have our Allure Beauty Box. We have a big licensing business. We're getting into events. It very much was what I had done at Nylon, but on a much grander scale. I mean, Allure is a huge, well-respected brand. So I also knew what we had and what was super valuable and not wanting to tear that up but um, to know that we also needed to, to modernize. Um, so I think a lot of it was looking at the various platforms, but then the other thing was, how do we shift the brand? Michelle has been committed to greatly increasing diversity at Allure. Here, she reveals how she went about doing that thoughtfully. time I started Allure was 25 years old. We just celebrated um, shortly after I started our 25th anniversary. And the image was had become a little bit stale, I want to say. like The image became what I like to call the uptown lady, where it was sort of – and this was the image around beauty everywhere. It wasn't really just Allure. It was just the image of beauty in advertising and anything was this very tall, thinned white, thin white lady, perfect skin, perfect hair, no pores. Like if you think about all of um, – the hair ads, right? Where it's like the person's hair is just like flowing beautifully. And I'm like, no one in reality looks like that. So I think that um, before I got the job, I had put together this presentation for my bosses about here's what I want to do with the brand. And one of the main things was about diversity. Um, I think that looking back at the past of Allure, it was definitely missing. And again, not just picking on Allure because it was media in general. It was advertising in general. It was entertainment in general. But I think that we knew very early on that we could make a stand in helping to expand beauty standards. Um, I remember early on meeting with our the big ad sales team and talking to them about what I wanted to do. And I hadn't even thought about this until someone had asked it to me. And I remember blurting out when they said, what are your goals? What do you think you could do with Allure? I was like, I think we can change the world. And it sounds so blustery now because you're like, really? Okay, beauty media, like you're going to change the world. But I actually think some of the things that we did have moved the needle. I think that we can actually, through beauty standards, help change the world. Just three years ago, there really was not that much diversity. If you look now with Fenty Beauty, you look at the runways, you look at everything else, diversity is not just a trend. Like it's definitely here to stay. But when we started doing some of our more um, provocative covers, let's say, it was not the norm at all. Like I think a lot of people looked at us as you guys are taking a lot of risks here. So we, in 2017, became the first major women's magazine in the States here um, to put a woman in a hijab on the cover. It was our America issue, and we had a big cover line that said, this is American beauty now. And thinking back politically about what was happening at that point, we were in like the height of um, the immigration ban, like it was definitely, there was a lot happening there that it was more than just a beautiful cover of Halima Adden. It was something that was a cultural statement. 
And I think that for me, that's been something that's been a goal of ours, that when we do something, I want to have these big cultural statements that mean something. It's not just, oh, look at this makeup trend. It is saying something larger about how can we make people think differently about what beauty is and about what beautiful is. So um, I think one of the big turning points was last April. So um, our April issue has historically been our skincare issue. But just again, with everything happening in the world, we wanted to do a big exploration of skin color. So we put these three beautiful um, women of color on the cover. And instead of just doing this like boring interview of like, you know, the normal celebrity profile, we inside um, interviewed 41 women of color telling their personal stories about colorism, diversity, representation. And what I loved about it and which I think has always been the voice of the lore is that it was super raw and personal and honest. It was definitely not your average like, quote unquote, women's magazine profile. Like it was it was really raw and personal to the point of where I still get messages from people being like, I've kept that issue and it meant so much to me. Um, and then the other thing happened this year. Um, we had our hair issue and we decided to put three Asian models on the cover, which I don't think has actually happened before in an American magazine. So we, um, it was still a hair moment because we had pink hair, um, uh, super black hair, and then platinum blonde hair. So on one level, you could look at it as, oh, it's an exploration into hair color. But by us using three Asian models, they each got their own gorgeous standalone cover. We were also making a statement about tokenism. So I wrote my editor's letter about that, that we've done so much about diversity, but let's stop patting ourselves on the back because there's still so much work to do. Like I'm kind of tired of seeing ads and magazine editorials where you have your one token person of color or your one token person who's a non-traditional body type or your one token trans model or something. And then, you know, people check off their checklist and they think, well, we're done. We're so good. Let's pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves awards. It's not good enough. You know, we have to really make sure that we're constantly pushing and thinking about, well, why are we tokenizing people and can we do better and just get people talking about it? Yeah. And I think that there is also something that you seem to be challenging around this idea that, you know, diversity is not six women that mostly look identical, but, or, you know, adhere to the same standard of beauty, but happen to have different shades of pigment in their faces. Exactly. And I think the thing is, a lot of this is happening because nobody questions things anymore, right? We just think, oh, well, we've been doing the same things over and over for years and years. I'll give you an example of something that hasn't come out yet. So we're doing a story about acne, right? And for how many decades have fashion and beauty and women's publishing written stories about acne? But the image that goes along with it is always like a woman with perfect skin. Why do we do that? So we actually shot someone for our story who has a lot of acne, and she's been open about her acne and everything. And it's just refreshing being able to see that image in a major mainstream magazine where you see someone who has a lot of acne. Because in the past, it would have just been all airbrushed out, or they would have used a stock image of some model who's got perfect skin. So I think, um, you know, I always think about there have been decades and decades of people talking about the negative effects of women's publishing, about how it makes people starve themselves or makes us feel bad about each other. But I think that we can actually do the reverse and have a really positive effect on people just by even showing what real people look like sometimes. So I, when I was growing up, um, I had this major growth spurt where I think I grew like seven or eight inches in a year. So I have stretch marks all over my legs. But I never saw images of people who had stretch marks. If you looked at movies, um, TV, images in, in ads and media and stuff, it was always airbrushed out. 
So I think for me, like with Instagram, even just seeing people who have stretch marks or who have cellulite, it's been really eye-opening and it helps people feel like, okay, I feel seen now. Yeah. I I do have one question about this. I think there's something so powerful about the idea of democratizing beauty, right? Saying beauty is not something that's just accessible to a small swath of people. We can all be beautiful. We can all tap into that. But I guess it comes down to the idea of how do you define beauty? Because there does still feel like we have one more step to take. Like, why should we all even have to be beautiful in order to be meaningful, substantive, to be contributing to our bigger world and to be taken seriously? Yeah. Well, to to me today, I feel like beauty is – and beauty to me is anything physical, right? So anything about our physical appearance is beauty. I think the big issue has been with narrow beauty standards. And that's where I think that we need to push people. The wonderful thing for me about beauty, though, has been that beauty today is self-care. I think um, I remember there was a story written a while ago about the headline was all skincare is a scam. And it got so attacked on social media because people were like, do not take away my skincare. Like my skincare and my routine helps get me going in the morning. It helps me relax at night. And I think there's something really special about that. The fact that if we look at skincare, it is self-care. That my routine, I have way too many skincare steps in the morning and at night, but I love it. Like I love feeling like I'm taking care of myself. And then with makeup, makeup is a form of self-expression. It is creativity, and I'm, I'm a big nail girl, um, and I, I look at my little teeny nail beds as this is my way of every single week, whether I do them myself or have someone else do them, of expressing my creativity, that I am able to have these little canvases on my body all the time that I feel like, oh, I just love looking at these. Before she left, Michelle revealed her most recent girl boss moment. Okay, so this is sort of random. I had a girl boss moment last night, um, which I will relate to work, but it's more of a personal moment, I guess. So I have two kids. Um, My daughter, Gabby, um, was helping her brother with a project, and she's a really good artist. So he had this big project to do on New Hampshire, and they were doing this like big poster board. So Gabby was helping to draw certain things uh, for Ethan. And it eventually, as happens with most siblings, it started out all nice and like lovely and then eventually became, don't do that, da da da, you know. So she comes upstairs and she was sort of sad and she was like, you know, mommy, can I talk to you? Ethan did this, you know, he said this, whatever. And normally, I think what kids want to do is they want their mom to fix it for them, right? And I easily could have gone and said, Ethan, don't do this, da da da, apologize to your sister. But instead, I said to her, well, I want you to do it. And I said, here's what you should say. Like, you know, I kind of helped her through it because she was like, oh, I don't know. And she felt so nervous and I could tell she didn't want to do it. And so finally she kind of gathered up her courage and she went and she talked to him. And he apologized and he said thank you to her for helping. She turned back around. She came back in and she had this look on her face that was so happy. And I think part of it was obviously she was happy that he apologized and said thank you. But it was also this sense of accomplishment that she did something that she felt like she couldn't do. And I think about that a lot because um, that's happened to me before in my career um, where empowering other people as a manager to do something is actually somehow more gratifying than just doing it yourself. Especially as a young manager, I very much was always that person of like, well, it's just faster and easier if I just do it myself. But I learned early on that 
by coaching people and helping them do something themselves, it's not only good for you, but it's good for them. And um, there was, uh, I know we're like running out of time, but like um, there was a moment when I was at Nylon where I had two coworkers who were not getting along. So they both kind of individually came into me to be like, this person's doing this, blah, 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 blah. And then the other person would come in, this person's doing this and we're fighting, you know, blah, blah, blah. So at some point, again, I normally would have sat down with the two of them and been like, we can work this out. Can we blah, blah, blah. Rather than doing that, though, I said, what I want you to do is go into a room, lock yourselves in it, and I know you guys can work it out. And I kind of gave them a couple words of advice, but they both very reluctantly went into another room. I walked by because it was a glass door and I saw them hashing it out. And at the end of it, they both individually came into me and they said, we worked it out. We hugged. We cried a little bit. But after that, it felt so much better for me because I knew that I had given them the tools to help them work it out as opposed to them always coming to me um, to do something for them. And I feel like it's a really good tool for all managers to have. Thank you so much for joining us today on Girl Boss Radio. If you liked what you heard, remember to subscribe, rate, review, and tell your friends. Follow at Girlboss, at Girlboss Radio, and at Girlboss Rally on Instagram. Check out our new podcast with Uber called Jumpstart, hosted by Jen Rubio, the co-founder of Away Luggage. If you've ever wondered how to pitch VCs, this is the show for you. Check it out wherever good podcasts are found. And remember, if you want to see what the future of Girlboss will look like, go to community.girlboss.com.